wrapped up by looking at these dictionary definitions for the word steward. So let's just put our eyes back up there again. What is a steward? We use that word in a certain sense, usually related to uh, a person managing finances. A steward is a person who manages another person's property or financial affairs. So there's kind of the definition that we would probably use most frequently with this word. One who administers anything as the agent of another or others. One who has charge of the household of another, providing for the table, the direction of the servants, etc. So maybe if you truly do get rich someday, um, you will be rich enough that there will be someone else that manages your household affairs, makes sure supper is ready, um, makes sure someone's lined up to clean up the dishes, and then you can go out and sit in your yard chair, and someone else has already mowed all the grass. Um, you had somebody that just sort of managed everything for you. And then two definitions, four and five, that relate to someone who is working on a ship, and it's their job to make sure that everyone else on the ship has everything they need at their disposal when they need it, and that all of the supplies on the ship last from the time they leave till they get to where they're going. So it does require some management to do something like that. People have a habit of using things up. And you, if you are managing something and you have to make it last when it gets from here to here, it does take some management sometimes. Because you have to rope in people's tendencies to use things up. I'd like to notice that a lot of these definitions of the word steward involve the idea that you're doing this for someone else's sake. If you're a steward of God, you are recognizing that God owns everything and he's trusted me to be a manager over some of his things, so I'm doing this for him. I'm working for him in all the little and big decisions that I make in life. If you are employed by someone you recognize that this person owns the business or he owns the place where I work. I get access to some of his resources, even the time that he's paying for, and uh, he's not maybe peering over my shoulder or cracking a whip. I'm responsible to manage my time and to manage the resources, the tools that he put at my disposal, but I'm doing it for his sake. Some of the other definitions of steward, three, four, and five, include the idea that there are people depending on me to do a good job of managing the things that I have. And that if I fail to do a good job of managing the things I have, someone else is going to pay some consequences for it. So it behooves me to think about my work and try to do a good job. A steward is a person who serves other people. Those definitions that we looked at, none of them include the idea that I become the owner of everything or I act like I'm the owner. I'm a steward of someone else's things. I want to direct your attention to this uh, fragment here from scripture. Am I my brother's keeper? Now who said that? I, my brother's keeper. Cain said that. If you're looking for something interesting to do for Bible studies sometime, start at the beginning of the book of Genesis, and um, your Bible study is going to be to read until you come to a question. What was the first question that was ever asked in the Bible? And then you're going to spend a little bit of time thinking about that. Then the next day, you'll read to the second question that's asked in the scripture. And you'll spend some time thinking about that. You won't do it very many days till you get to this question right here. Am I my brother's keeper? That was a question that Cain asked, and um, I have the sense he wasn't being very respectful when he asked that. God had asked him a question, and then instead of answering the question, he just gave back a different question to God. 
it probably frustrates you or it upsets you if you're maybe dealing with a little child and you're trying to correct them and you ask them a question and they don't answer your question. They just ask a different question instead. That's what Cain did here. His question is significant. Am I my brother's keeper? That word keeper is very interesting. You could do a Bible study on the word keeper. Look up every occurrence of keeper in the Bible and, and study what's it talking about here? Who's being discussed? In the Old Testament, there is a Hebrew word that is translated keeper. Keeper is used more frequently than you might think. Um, a keeper was an official. So there was a keeper of the prison. Who was the keeper of the prison? Did he own the prison? No. He was the official that was in charge of that prison and he managed it. He managed the security. He managed the prisoners. He probably managed the supplies, like the food that they bought for the prison, and then how much each prisoner got every day. He was the keeper of the prison. The scripture talks about the keeper of the king's forest and the keeper of the king's wardrobe. So it was an official. It was a person who had some management responsibility. And if you were the keeper of the king's forest, there was evidently pieces of land that belonged to the royal house, woodland, and you were responsible for all of that. You were like the game warden, or you were the forester, and you decided which trees got cut, and you decided who was allowed to hunt there, and um, if more trees got planted, that was your responsibility to hire somebody to do it. You were the keeper of the king's forest. It wasn't your forest, but you had some authority and some responsibility to take care of this. That word keeper has an interesting literal translation. Keeper is not the literal translation. When you know a translator came to this word and he thought about this word, he said, well, how can I say this that people will understand what it means? It literally means hedge, of thorns. So the hedge of thorns about the prison, the hedge of thorns about the king's forest. What's the meaning of that? It is hard for us to understand, but it was very easy for them to understand. Okay, so take your mind and we're going to rewind about 2,000 years back and we're going to change our location from Lebanon County to the land of Israel. And a lot of people, their occupation was agricultural. For many of them, they were keepers of small animals, goats and sheep. And these goats and sheep, they did not have um, barbed wire, high tensile wire, woven wire, so they kept their animals in flocks that were led out to pastures to feed, and then somebody had to be a shepherd and be responsible to watch the animals and to get them back safely in the evening. They did have to have a safe place for putting the animals, because in the evening, predators would be more active. So to protect the animals, and partic particularly the weaker animals like the lambs, or the little kids, they needed a sheepfold of some kind. Now, building materials were harder to come by. They had neither a Lowe's nor a Home Depot. So they had to make do with what they had. They didn't have Ace Hardware or Rural King or whatever you go to buy your building supplies, fencing supplies. They would try to find a place that maybe had some natural enclosure to it. Maybe it backed up to a cliff. But then they still had to close in the rest. The cheapest building material are the weeds. They had lots of thorn bushes. So they would go out and they would dig up certain types of thorn bushes and carefully lift it out of the ground and they would take, and let's imagine there's a cliff back here, 
and we've decided that this is where we're going to build our family's um, sheepfold. So we're protected on the backside. We're going to dig up thorn bushes and we're going to plant them. We're going to plant one right here and one right here and all the way around except for one little opening. That's a pretty cheap fence. And then we're going to water the thorn bushes and prune the thorn bushes and you know, take the branches and try to make them cross over each other. And in about two or three years, those will grow together and we will have a hedge of thorns about the sheepfold. What's the purpose of the hedge of thorns? To protect the little animals. And I think this is even a good picture of the church. What's the role of the church? You have a lot of children. Some of them are out in their classes and some of them are sitting in here on someone's lap. It is your job to protect these little children, to protect them from the evil that's in the world and to protect them from predators, the devil and his helpers and people who would want to do harm to children. It's your job to teach these children, to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You need to protect them. And the church is like a sheepfold, like a hedge of thorns. So you have, um, maybe you have your deacon planted right here, and he's kind of thorny, you know, he's got some thorny aspects to him. And then you have the sweet little old lady planted right here. And then you have the middle-aged guy planted right here, and then you have a youth boy planted right here, and a youth girl right here, and a young couple right here. And they're growing together so that they can protect the little ones together. You don't want any weak spots in your hedge of thorns. That's the idea about the hedge of thorns. Cain asked God, or kind of threw it back to God, am I supposed to be Abel's hedge of thorns? What do you think the answer is? Uh, yes, matter of fact, you are. You are supposed to be his hedge of thorns. You are supposed to protect him. Are you your brother's hedge of thorns at this church? Do you do that for each other? Um, do you look out for each other's financial interest? If there would be somebody in your church that didn't have enough work, would the other people at this church be thinking about that and make sure that that guy got enough work? Or if there was maybe a youth girl who was looking for a job, you know, she's out of school now and she wants to get a job, would the people in this church be thinking about it that Abigail needs a job and we don't want her working just anywhere. We want her in a good environment where she'll be protected and she'll be able to earn the money she needs to earn, but we want her to be protected. We need to make sure that Abigail has a good job. Do you look out for each other's financial interest? Are you their hedge of thorns? Do you know that some people do not actually know how to look out for themselves? They're nice people, but they are dumb as rocks. Okay, they just can't get it done. If it's up to them to look out for themselves, they won't get it done, and that's why they have you. Or maybe that's why um, you have the people in the church, because you need someone to look out for you? Are you looking out for each other? You need to protect each other from financial predators. Do you know that there would be people in the world that would like to take advantage of different people in this church? They would like to rip them off. They would like to get their money and put it in these other people's pockets. Do you look out for people? Um, if you hear about someone and maybe they're making a bad financial decision, um, they think it's a great idea to um, take out these loans on their credit card, you know, 0% interest for three months, and you find out that they think that's a great idea. Well, are you their hedge of thorns? Would you come up alongside them and say, hey, let's talk about this. Let's see if this is really the right thing for you to do. Maybe if somebody in your church was thinking about buying a certain property, and you knew they were going to pay too much. Would you go talk to them about it? Maybe if somebody out of their pride was buying a vehicle that they really didn't need, would you go talk to them about it? 
even if they were 64 years old, would you go talk to them about it? Is that really a wise use of your money? Well, if your brethren together in church, you know, a brotherhood, well, yeah, you would probably go talk to each other because you are each other's hedge of thorns. You would care for the weak, the helpless, and those who can't manage for themselves. There are people who it's not that they're dumb, it's that they have some disability. Is the church responsible to make sure the ones with some disability get taken care of pretty good? Yep, church's responsibility. Make sure, if you have anyone like that in your congregation, they just get looked out for pretty good by everybody in church. You have any widows? Um, you have any um, single ladies that are a little older and they don't have a husband to take care of things for them? Do you have um, the attitude here that, you know what, we better just take care of them pretty good? because it's our responsibility to be a hedge of thorns. And maybe you even have to be a thorn to him, like the little lamb that wants to get out at night, and if he gets out, he's gonna get eaten up by the lion or the bear or the wolf, so we need to prick him with some thorns sometimes to keep him inside the fence for his own good. Are you willing to be someone's hedge of thorns? I want to talk about this uh, statistic a little bit. In this country, the divorce rate, it's right about 50%. It's actually down a little bit right now. We used to be able to say it runs at 50%. Half of the marriages in America are heading for divorce, whether the people know it or not. It's actually down a little bit. Part of that relates to the fact that um, fewer people are actually getting married. They're just living together in partnerships. So there are fewer marriages to break up. But um, about half of the marriages end in divorce. And in 80% of divorces, financial problems are cited as a major contributing factor to the divorce. You know, when people have to state reasons why they're going to the lawyer to, um, to get divorce paperwork drawn up. 80% of the time, Finances is a primary reason that's laid out. It, it may not be the only reason. It may be a, you know, a combination of factors, but finances. What would it be about financial issues or problems that would dissolve the glue between a husband and wife? Okay, I imagine there are some young married people here from the looks of it. The young married people, you know, they're still in this cute little lovey-dovey stage. I pulled in and two of them got out of a car and they were kind of holding hands, leaning on each other like they do. And you know, oh, that's just cute. Just let them go, it's cute. Um, that's fine. They probably couldn't imagine that they might get divorced someday. Wouldn't think it. And certainly they wouldn't think that disagreements over money would cause them to stop loving each other. They, they just, it's not within the, their possibility to comprehend that. Yet, financial problems do have some connection to bad marriages. Why would that be? Give you a few thoughts on that. Wrong attitudes toward God can't be contained in one area of life. If a person has a wrong view of their relationship with God, okay, what's that? That's stewardship. God owns everything and I work for God. He owns not just my resources, but he owns my time and my talents. If I don't recognize that and live that way, okay, I'm gonna have a bad relationship this way, me and God. If you've got trouble in your relationship this way, it's going to leak out this way. You're going to have trouble in your relationships with the people around you, including the one that lives in the same house with you. So a bad relationship with God is going to go out this way. You can't keep a bad relationship with God just in your checkbook. It's going to be in the checkbook, but it's going to show up in other areas as well. 
When a family is under chronic stress related to finances, it has an effect on the people in the family. And I do want to you know, insert the caveat here. I'm talking about chronic financial stress. Every family will have ups and downs. You will have um, negative financial events in your life. I haven't come across anyone yet that didn't have any backsets or reverses or disappointments in life. Um, I'm not talking about the occasional bad event that happened financially to you. I'm not talking about the month where you didn't have very much income or the year that wasn't the best year in your financial life. I'm talking about chronic financial distress. This family is in trouble financially. And they've been in trouble for a while, and there's no sign of getting out of trouble. They are in it, and they're in it deep, and they are stuck. Those type of people are in a danger zone. Because chronic financial distress, it does, it affects all of the parts of the family unit. What is the husband supposed to be? Well, a husband is supposed to be a protector and a provider. That's what men are created to be. And when a husband isn't cutting it financially, he's not bringing in enough money to support his family, or he has obviously made some serious financial mistakes and he has jeopardized his family's situation, that is psychologically very hard on a man, emotionally. He will not want to show it or admit it, but Feeling like a failure financially um, is very hard on a man. It tears him down. Um, it might not be something you've ever experienced, but if a man is out of work, that is a very bad thing for a man, to be out of work and not to have something productive to do with himself. Not only is he likely to end up in some sort of mischief or trouble, it tears him down as a leader because he's not able to do what God created him to do, provide for his family. If you have a family that's in chronic financial distress in your community or in your church or in your family, you better do something to help them. Because if you don't, the leader in the family is going to be torn down and it will affect his ability to relate with his wife and it will affect his ability to raise his children properly. So as a church, you ought to care if somebody's struggling and they're not coming out of it. They're stuck down there. It also affects the wife and the mother in the family. She is not created to be the protector and provider in the family. She is to create, created to be the supporter and the nurturer in the family. Dad breaks things and moms fixes them relationally with the children. A mother's role in the family is very difficult to replace. Pity the young men who lose their wife and as a widower have to raise little children because they're being um, put into a position that they cannot really fulfill. They can't be a mother, um, only a mother can be a mother. But when a family is in chronic financial distress, it puts a pressure on a lady to do something that she's not called to do. She knows that their family is an embarrassment in the community. She knows that their children are suffering some deprivations because the dad either can't earn enough money or he keeps on making stupid financial decisions and using up the resources we have. Something needs to be done. He obviously doesn't know what to do so I'm going to have to become a protector and provider in this family. It's not what she's called to do. Mothers need to be mothers. If you have a family in your congregation, your extended family or your community that's under chronic financial distress, you ought to do something for that family for the sake of the mother. And you ought to do something for the sake of the children. Children need security. Children do not need big houses. Children do not need lots of expensive toys. 
But if children have a dad who can be a leader in their family, and they have a mother who has time to mother them, then children will feel secure. Children will have everything they need if they have a dad who can be a good leader and they have a mother who can be a mother. So then it all just comes back on you as a church that if you have families that struggle, take an interest in them. What can we do to help these children, these people? Because we want to help the dads be good dads. We want the mothers to have time to be good mothers and we want the children to feel secure and to develop properly. Okay, we're gonna take a break right now. I had a um, question asked last night that I thought was a really good question. So I'm just gonna throw it to you. I have a little story to tell you when we're done with this little break here that I think illustrates my answer to this question. Last night when we were looking in 1 Timothy, we were focusing on the fact that um, the scripture says People who love money are in trouble. The love of, the mon of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that those who want to be rich are in a very dangerous position. So our, basically our whole evening last night, that was the theme to get in our heads. It's not the people who are rich who are in all, all this danger. The, the scripture is very explicit. It's the people who want to be rich the people who have a drive for money and possessions, people who are covetous, people who love money. They are in a dangerous position. The question was asked to me afterwards, okay, that's right, how would I know if I love money? How would I know if I am actually wanting to be rich rather than wanting to supply for my family? Where's kind of the line there? between being responsible, doing my work, um, being a good steward, caring about finances, and loving money and wanting to be rich. Okay, so you get, you can kind of turn around wherever you're sitting, so you're in a group of at least about five people, and you discuss that a little bit amongst yourselves. How do I know, how would I know if I'm loving money? Or, if I'm wanting to be rich in a way that the scripture speaks against. Go ahead and talk to each other for a few minutes. I'm gonna switch my PowerPoint around to a different presentation. It's a good thing to talk about. Maybe you can ask your um, spouse at home, where do you think I'm at on that? Or you can ask your friend if you're not married um, or the other guys at work at break time. You know, you can ask that question. It's, a, it's actually a pretty good question. Tell you a little story, this is a true story. Um, this couple I'm gonna describe is a young couple. Actually, they're, they're not young. I guess I can't call them new married anymore. Um, this story took place probably 15 years ago. Um, I know this couple very well, so I, I have reason to know the details. It's not my wife and I, it's a, it's a young couple, another couple that we know. Um, they were new married at the time. Um, they married, uh, she was probably about 23, 24 when they got married. He was a couple of years older, so I don't know if he was 27, 28. Both of them were fairly responsible young people. They had not been frivolous or wasteful. They were both good workers. They both entered into marriage with a little bit of a nest egg and um, not enough to buy a house, but they each brought a little bit of money into the marriage. And it wasn't very long into their marriage um, that they started thinking about buying a property. And they wanted to have a house of their own, and they spent time thinking about this. What type of house do we want? And they got in their mind kind of um, type of house they thought they would want to have, and long before they would have had money to go out and buy a house, they started, um, it was maybe like their date night type thing, I guess. They would drive around um, in the broader community where they lived and just slowly drive down roads and streets and look at the houses. And they would make lists. And then they would whittle down their list, little bit at a time. 
And finally, um, we got to a, they got to a place where they had decided on the house they wanted to buy. I mean, they had literally picked out a house they wanted to buy um, as a young couple. I um, was sitting in a living room, and they were there, and some other people were there, and the lady was talking about this house they wanted to buy. And she was describing different features of it. It happened to be in town, and it was kind of up on a hill, and the yard was such and such. It was a brick house, it was two stories, and you know, she went on and on, and I knew her pretty well, and I'm listening to her, and um, finally it's like, okay, well, like, how many bedrooms is it? She was talking about the outside of the house and not saying anything about the inside of the house. So I'm like, okay, how many bedrooms? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, we've never been in the house. I said, you didn't even go look at it? I said, oh, well, we've driven by it lots of times, but the house isn't for sale. But we decided this is the house we want to buy, and we prayed about it, and, and we think God's going to give us this house. And I knew her well enough to say, you're an idiot, or you're, you're nuts, or something like that, <laughs> that the house, <laughs> the house isn't even for sale. And you're telling me that God told you that you're going to buy this house, and it's not for sale. I wonder if God told the people who own the house this, that you're going to own it someday. Um, so we kind of laughed about it, and they could accept it, but, well, hey, you can laugh if you want. We think we're buying that house someday. They continued to save money, and they had saved 30 few thousand dollars. That's about how much they had in their house fund for a down payment, so they were getting a nice little nest egg built up for a young couple, and wouldn't you know it, a for sale sign went up at this house. Huh. So right away they called the real estate agent and they made arrangements to go see the house. The inside was better than the outside, okay? At least in their minds. And I saw the inside too later at one point. Um, I had reason to be there and it was a nice house. It was an older house. Um, back in its day, it was kind of like an upper class house, had a little age on it. It had big, wide baseboards. All the trim in the house was oak. Big, wide crown molds in the living room and the dining room and the entrance hall, like a big wooden staircase going up, you know, with um, oak trim. It was a beauty. Um, one of those houses that was built like in the 1880s back in there. It was lovely. But it was a little too much money. So they had to hold on a little bit. They were at church one evening, um, Sunday evening, and the program that Sunday evening was that there was a visiting missionary. So I don't know who it was, but somebody was there telling about the work they were doing in this other country or that they were going to go do. They lifted an offering for it. They put a little something in the offering, in the collection. And um, it was a couple days later um, they said they were laying in bed, going to sleep, and the husband said to the wife, he said, hey, I have been thinking about that missionary that was at church the other night, and I just can't get over the feeling that we should have put more money in the offering. And she's like, I have been thinking the exact same thing ever since Sunday night. So they talked about it. And they did something that I thought was pretty commendable. They didn't have a lot of extra cash laying around. The only real money they had was their building fund money, their house money. And they talked about it, and they decided to give, this is a young couple. They'd saved just over $30,000 to buy a house, and this they picked out the house they want. They decided to give $10,000 of their house money to this mission project. Big decision, I would have said. That rocked on for a couple of weeks, and um, one day the husband said to the wife, he said, hey, hon, I am still thinking about that mission project. I can't get it out of my heart that we did not give enough. And she's like, oh, I don't know about that. And they had to talk about this for a while. And finally she agreed, 
let's go back into our house fund and give a little more. Young couple, under 30 years old, saving for a good thing, a house. They gave $10,000 more out of their house money. And a couple days later, he said, hey, hon. And she said, don't say it. I know exactly what you're going to say. We're supposed to give the rest of our house money, and I do not want to do it. And they had marriage problems for a little bit. And they worked it out, and she came around, and she said, we have to do it. And they emptied out the rest of their house money and gave it to this mission project. So they gave up their dream to buy this house. Because you can't buy houses without a reasonable down payment. They weren't the type of people to buy without a reasonable down payment. Um, they were good with money. They're, we're going to have to start from scratch, start saving back up again. It went about six months and they got a phone call from the real estate agent. He said, hey, you remember me? I showed you a house so many months ago. Uh, yeah, remember you. Y'all ever find a place? No, we didn't find a place. Hey, that house you were looking at is still available. Would you like to come see it again? And they were like, no. Um, they didn't tell them they didn't have any money now. They just, or they had very little. Um, they, they said, no, 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 we're not interested. He said, oh, please, just come and let me show it to you again. I can't figure out what's going on. No one will come and look at this house. The owner has reduced the price and reduced the price and reduced the price and it's way below market value and nobody will come and look at this house. We line up people looking at houses and we drive by it and they say, keep on going. Don't even want to go in and look at it. Just come and look at it. The lady has another house. She doesn't need the money. She wants to get rid of this thing and unload it. Um, okay, we'll come and see the house. They came and saw the house, loved it as much as they ever did. He said, and he knew that, the real estate agent, he said, hey, make an offer. Just make an offer. And the fellow, his name was Joel, he said, no. He said, I can't do that. Because it wouldn't even be, um, he didn't use the word chite, he used the word like, <laughs> it wouldn't even be decent to make an offer of what I could afford to offer. I don't even want to do that. I would embarrass me myself. I'd embarrass you. The lady would get mad if I offered what I thought we could give for it. And the agent said, no. He said, this lady, she wants an offer. Okay, he made an offer. It was a fraction of what the house had been listed for. Got a call right back. She's accepted your offer. Go line up your financing. They went to the bank and the agent said, oh, you're first time home buyers. We are running a special program for first time home buyers right now. And the bank is gonna give you half of your down payment. We're just gonna credit it. Um, they had some limited time government grant. It was an unbelievable turn of events. They bought the house. They lived in it for a number of years. They had a couple of children come along and eventually they outgrew the house. They didn't want to be right in town anymore. They decided, you know, they found another property that um, was maybe a little more countrified, family friendly. So they put the house on the market. They sold it at the height of the real estate market and made an absolute killing. Now, does God do that every time? Don't count on it. Did God do it in their case? Yes. What had they done? They had done several things. Among those, they had been responsible. They were not wasteful people. They were Christians and they were, they, Christianity affected their checkbook. They were careful with their money. They did not spend their money frivolous, frivolously. They prayed about financial decisions. They were trying to be responsible. You know, we ought to buy a house and put our money into a property. They had saved up money before their marriage and after their marriage. They had been generous. And when God put his finger on money that they had set aside for a legitimate need of their own, 
they were willing to respond to that. Okay, how do you know if you are loving money? How do you know if you want to be rich? I think this gives a little bit of an illustration. They had their building fund or, or their house fund. Is that a legitimate need, you think? think that's legitimate for a young family to be saving money so they can get a place. I think it's legitimate. They had it in their hand. Right there it is. Just like you have lots of different things in your hand. You've got your time in your hand. You have your family in your hand. You have money, possessions, um, all kinds of stuff. Okay? You got it in your hand and God reaches for it. And your hand goes like that. You don't want to let it go. Okay? They had to deal with that. Especially the lady. You know, after the first 10,000, when God reached for the second 10,000, her hand went like this. And when God reached for the last 10,000, her hand went like this. That's our house money. But they got to the point where they said... It is God that is asking for it. Nobody came and asked us to give our house money to this mission. Nobody suggested it to us. Nobody put any pressure on it. Um, we know it was God. He knew it was God, and she knew it was God. And they decided that we're going to do this. We're going to go like that, and if he wants our house money, he can have our house money. And he can actually have all of it. And he took it. And then God in his goodness gave back more than they could have imagined. Okay, can you bank on it that if you sacrifice something for God, he will repay you in a um, financial sense? No. I don't think there is... Um, I don't think there's a promise that the, the blessings that God showers on people are financial in nature. I don't believe in a health and wealth gospel that if you love God, you'll never have cancer, never have to cut your toenails, um, everything will go great for you in life, um, you only earn more money every year, your children will all be beautiful and have IQs of 120. No. Normal life happens to everyone. Even to people who follow God, and are generous with what they have. But maybe that's one test you can use um, when you're trying to figure out, am I, um, am I driven by covetousness? Or um, wanting to be rich? Or do I love money? Well, when I have something in my hand and God reaches for it, do my fingers go like this? And if they go like this, I probably need to work on myself some. And if they're like this, I've got a real problem. That whatever it is, I didn't want to give it up to God. And it might not be your money. Maybe it's your time. You're generous with your money and you're selfish with your time. Because you like to keep control of your time and spend your time on yourself. And then God puts all these people in your life that need some of your time. And you just get pretty grabby with your time. Okay, maybe it's your children. Maybe if you're a little older person, maybe you're a younger person and God decides to take one of your little children away from you. What do you do? You get mad? Or do you, God gave, what Job said. Lord giveth, and the Lord decides to take away sometimes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What if you're a little bit older person, middle-aged and one or more of your children want to move out of Lancaster or Lebanon County. And they want to go to a little mission church somewhere. They want to go on the mission field. And you don't really want them to go. Because it's just nice having them around here. And they can start helping, you know, around our place. We're getting a little older. And we need to see the grandchildren twice a week. And um, are you a little grabby with your children? There's lots of things that God puts into your life. You're a steward of all these things. Never forget that these things are not owned by you, 
These things are owned by God. Okay, we're going to switch gears here, and I'm going to introduce um, one of three little um, smaller topics I hope to do between tonight and um, the end on Friday night. I'm going to talk about giving and brotherhood. We're not going to get done with this, so I'm, don't look at the clock and think, oh no, he's going to go to 9 o'clock. No, I'll stop at 8.30, but I'm going to get started on this, and then we'll wrap this up tomorrow evening. Stewardship is that idea that everything belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. God doesn't need um, us because God owns everything. And everything we have is going to be given back to God someday. You don't take anything into the grave with you. Um, all those earthly things fall behind. There's two types of attitudes you can have in life. You can act like an owner, or you can act like you think you're a steward. If you are a steward, um, you really are. You really are um, a steward. You have that mentality, then you will tend to be a content person. You will be thankful for whatever you do have, whether it's a lot or a little. You will have moderation in your life, because the things that I have to work with, like my money and my stuff, this actually belongs to God, and I can't be wasteful of God's things. Maybe if it was belonged to me, I could do whatever I wanted with it, but it belongs to God, and I'm responsible for it, so I can't just be blowing lots of money so I have an easy, cushy life or the biggest house or the nicest stuff. I have moderation in my life because I'm a steward. I'm not an owner. A steward will have humility. Um, I don't have anything to be proud of, um, whatever I do have, be it little or much, God gave it to me. And a steward will think in terms of brotherhood. You know what? I am responsible for money and stuff, but I'm responsible for my spouse. I'm responsible for the children. I'm responsible for these people I go to church with. Um, I'm going to be focused on, I'm going to be people-oriented instead of um, possessions-oriented. What about the person who's different than that? The person who actually does think they are the owner, that type of person will be covetous. They will want things that God is not choosing to give them. They will be complaining about what they have, even if they happen to have quite a bit. Um, they will go to excesses. It's okay for me to go on that type of vacation because the money's mine anyway. It's okay for me to drive any vehicle I want because it's my money, who would have a right to tell me that I don't deserve this type of vehicle? And that goes right on down the line. Um, they would tend to be proud people. They would think that they deserve everything they have. Um, I did this after all. Um, I built this business. I paid off all this real estate. Um, I have this good job because I'm pretty smart. They'll be a proud person and they'll also be a pretty independent person. They'll be looking out for themselves and you're gonna to have to look out for yourself because my focus is right here. Two different types of attitudes. Which of those two types of people do you wanna be? You wanna be the type of person in the first column or do you wanna be the type of person in the second column? A steward says everything I have is a gift from God. An owner says everything I have is mine. I deserve it because I earned it. God doesn't need our resources, but we need the exercise and discipline of giving. Giving is something you need to do for your own sake. God does not need your $20 bill or your $100. There's a different reason why you're asked to give. It's not because God will run out of money if you don't and God will have to shut down part of his kingdom and turn the lights out over here because you didn't give. He does not need your money. He can do whatever he wants. Um, he can print new money if he wants. Um, he can make things happen for free if he wants. But for some reason, he wants you to be giving and it has more to do with you than it does with him. God says that... Um, 
We are partners with God. Remember we, we said about the little boy or the little girl? You only let them partner with you in the shop or in the yard or in the kitchen, not because they're really that useful, but because you want to build relationship with them. God wants to work with you and your money because he actually likes you. Kind of hard to believe, but he likes you. And he wants to spend time with you, and he wants you to get to know him better. And money is just a handy tool for that to happen. What do we give to God? All we're giving him is a little bit of what he already owns. Um, it's kind of like when you are um, at the, you know, you got children about this big in the home, and it's dad's birthday. And the children bought something for dad for his birthday. Where in the world did they get the money to buy a gift for dad? They got it from mom who got it from dad. They used dad's money to give something to dad. What are you doing when you put money in the offering or you give it to a mission? You're giving God a little bit of his own money. That's all you're doing and you feel so good about it and he's probably smiling. <laughs> Look at them. They think they did something. Isn't that cute? Um, I gave them money and they gave it back and they feel so good about it and I'm glad they feel good about that. Um, but that's what's happening. You're just giving back a little bit of what was already his. What is God like? Um, God's nature, um, you could say lots of things here, but it's accurate to say that God is love. Um, if you don't love, you don't know much about God because that's what God is. It doesn't say that God does lovely things. It says that God is love. It's just the type of person that he is. God is a person. Um, he has personhood. And one of his core characteristics is to be loving. What are people? Well, people by nature are selfish. Um, you don't have to teach your children to be selfish. Like, hun, you got to work on the children. They are not near selfish enough. Um, we got to really crack down in this area so that the little guys will be more selfish with their toys. No, you have to do the opposite because the selfish comes with the baby and the diapers. And it's your job as parents to, to work it out, to get rid of it. Um, people are by nature selfish, and the longer time goes, the scripture says, the more selfish the world's going to get. So there's an opposite thing here. What do you really want to be like? God loved, and because God loved, God gave. How do you give? How much do you decide to give? This is where we're going to pick up tomorrow night. There's, you know, there's actually different ways you can give. Different models you can use to decide how much we're going to give in our family. Um, this is where we'll pick up tomorrow night, and then I think we'll probably also talk about debt tomorrow night, and then finish up talking about saving on Friday night. Thank you for your attention.